Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, uh, welcome back to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. A happy 2022 to you, let's hope we can get on with the rugby without too many interferences. We're back with a new series ahead of what should be one of the most competitive Six Nations in years. The build-up to this year's tournament and throughout, we will be with you every step of the way, getting the inside track from players, coaches and some of the best pundits in the game. England named their 36-man squad tomorrow. number of questions are up in the air ahead of the announcement. Uh, Will captain Owen Farrell be rushed back? He's missed nearly three months since picking up an injury against Australia in November. And with the continued good form of Marcus Smith at Harlequins, is there any need to fast-track him back into the squad? And indeed, when you look at George Ford and how he's uh, transformed himself at Leicester, uh, what does that say about Farrell and Smith? We look for the... Well, they're familiar selection dilemmas, which are now at number eight. Will Jones continue with his Tom Curry experiment? That sounds a good, good name for a band, doesn't it? The Tom Curry experiment. And we can rely on Manu Tuolangi to give us more hope and then possible tragedy in terms of his fitness. Wales have announced a massive boost last week. The COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted from January the 21st, allowing full crowds to return to the Principality Stadium for the Six Nations. Uh, Elsewhere, there was more news to celebrate in Wales because 12 female players were given their first professional contracts. Uh, We'll be speaking to Nigel Walker, the performance director at the WRU, about the landmark movement for Welsh rugby and the impact he expects it to have on the women's game moving forward. We're also going to be rounding up what was a busy weekend in Europe. Leinster made amends for their 28-0 thrashing by Montpellier earlier in the year. And they weren't allowed to play. Exeter thrashed Glasgow, was seeing off defending champions uh, with only 14 men for, for half the game at least. So delighted to wade through all this uh, alongside me, the former England Sevens captain who's on his way to Spain, I think, Rob Vickerman. Hello, Rob. Hello, Brian. Happy 2022 yeah, to you, mate. To you. Um, let's start with the 87. No, 89. Seven. 89, you calculated wrong. Sorry, I've got 13 tries. Yeah, 13 tries. Record European win for Leinster. Over Montpellier, look, um, I know it must have stung them a bit, the circumstances where they weren't allowed even to 
to try and get the game on against Montpellier. But that can't account for everything in this, can it? This absolute gubbing. Well, there's a caveat to it. Leinster hadn't played in five weeks. Yeah. Montpellier were without 18 of, fair to say, their better players, so yep. they came a little bit cold. It was at the RDS, which is an intimidable place to play anyway, but ultimately, that is phenomenal score. I mean, I, I did laugh when Philippe Santandre was saying it was a basketball score, going, 89 nil, mate, it's more like an English cricket score yeah, we hope for, you know. Not, well, not, not even English, no, no, it's not like an English cricket score, because... I hope for. 89 for seven, yeah, 89 for seven, 89 for <laughs> yeah, seven. That is, the, you're absolutely right there. Uh, um, look, it's the sort of thing that actually, the, the tournament, you can't, you can't sustain too many of these, can you? You can, maybe we're having a laugh at this one, but we don't want any more of these because that's not good for the credibility of any competition. No, and I did actually see Philippe Santandre afterwards almost in tears about it. Then he said, you know, this, this is something I've never seen before. I don't expect it to happen again. The circumstances, but ultimately we're outplayed in every aspect of the game. And, and Wakathak had got the uh, red card as well. So kind of compounded that in the last 13 minutes. But, it's not good for anyone, like you say. We saw one last week with, with the women's game and it, it just it brings up more headlines for being a mockery than it is a positive element. So I don't, I don't think we can read too much into it. But there were some cracking games across the board otherwise. There were. For, for England teams, uh, Leicester-Bristol was already in the last 16 with a game to spare. Two impressive wins in particular for Wasp over Toulouse. Leicester last gas bit over Cornet and then there was that argy-bargy at the end with Bundiaki. What do you think about that? Well, it's interesting about the reaction to it. And I was on a panel last week on behalf of the RFU with coaches who had come out with language seen to be disrespectful toward the referee. And Bundiaki, to have that type of incident, to be that vocal as he was, albeit he came out with an apology, it's not something the game needs. And for anybody listening to this who are proud about the values of rugby, and I myself as a coach of under-10s, instill it into the young lads and girls that play, it's a respect thing. And part of the respect is you call the referee sir. Conversely... When I take my lad to football on a Saturday, it's not the same. And I won't go too much into that, but ultimately, that's what you pride yourself on. Mm. The sportsmanship, the respect code. So Bundiaki to come out with that type of reaction, it's not great. And certainly from your law point of view also, you don't want to be hearing that language. And I'll tell you the other thing. Um, there's quite a few apologists for this saying, oh, he said sorry. You can't just say what you want and then say sorry. You do have to say sorry when you've, when you've got it wrong, which is, is something. I'm glad he did that. But he can't say it in the first place mm. because uh, the, the thing's already been there. The, the damage has already been done. Uh, and that's what we, we, you know, we don't want. Um, Bristol, until last 16, have only played one game. <laughs> You've been trying to work out the pools. That's part of the problem. So two pools are 12. You're better off talking who's not going to qualify from these yeah. pool A and B, which at the moment would be Saints, Bath, Ospreys, Stad, um, Cardiff and Scarlets. So not great for the Welsh regions. But it's one of those formats where... We can come up with a nice headline about teams that are qualified. We're not going into the mass of it because it's still so up in the air. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, look, th- these are atypical times. I need to get something out there. Uh, I am willing to uh, give them quite a bit of, uh, of latitude on this. Now, look, Ulster, big performance to book their place in the last 16 uh, at uh, Franklin's Gardens. Saints are likely to drop out of the Challenge Cup. Did you see, um, I hesitate to ask you this because it's far too early probably, do you see anything that suggests to you there are overwhelming favourites. Uh, well, three in, out of four the for the Irish teams. Yeah. Generally looking great. I mean, they're in such a good place for their rugby. They're yeah. playing a really good brand across the board. They're matching that kind of Leinster style and how Ireland are playing, beating the All Blacks at home. Everything about Ireland rugby is positive at the moment. So I'm excited to see what they're going to do. I'd say definitely are up there in terms of potential. But we say this knowing French teams can be 
incredible at home. So when those round of 16 fixtures come out and the fixtures are going to be, I think was it in the next 10 days they'll be announced, mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to see who's got those big French home draws. Well, the England squad is set to be named tomorrow. Um, Eddie Jones has decided he wants to have the full complement here this year. He's not going to limit himself. What do you think, well, it's quite obvious actually, are the biggest question marks the same as they've ever been, aren't they? Centre, half-back, number eight, back row balance, a little bit possibly um, with the back three, depending on form. But I tell you what, I'm, uh, Rob, I'm getting a bit... I'm not. It's difficult to say hacked off, but I don't. I, did, I don't expect. I don't. Hopefully, I'm not going to be asking the same questions in 12 months' time because then we're very close to a World Cup, and that won't be good. So I've done a bit of digging on this, and I once read someone use a, an adjective of erudite, which I quite like the sound of. So I went into a bit of a, a, a researching capacity this morning on it all, and the conversations largely around the England team tend to be around the centre partnerships and back row and it transpires that in the premiership at the moment there are 45 South African players playing in the premiership which I think is obviously great to say in terms of the diversity it will bring but every single successful model of team at the moment tend to look for this big 12 type mindset this moulded 12 who can plough in and your typical Andre Estes and four Quinn well, he's the biggest he's the best yeah and he's amazing at it and that then completely transforms how your team plays because you know you've got that absolute foundation block that's going to do something for you and actually across the board this this weekend in the Champions Cup only two out of eight English teams playing had English 12 so straight away I'm there thinking right we've got a bit of a problem there longer term because we're not developing these players so the reason why these arguments are often similar is because there's not the right amount of players playing representative at the top level from an English point of view and that's Mm -hmm. not trying to be partisan that's not trying to stir up political debates it's saying on the matter of fact not enough players at the moment are really stepping up. So there was Piers O'Connor for Bristol and Max Clark for Bath, who's actually born in Wales. So those two players at the moment, the only ones that are really stepping up as starters, and then you get the players underneath that. So Dan Kelly, very exciting. He could be taking that mould of, say, a Mark Atkinson who came in only for Tonga in the Autumn Internationals. A bit of a long shot. And then Paolo Dogwa played at 13 for Wasps. So Manu and Slade are out-and-out favourites to play because they're the only ones playing regularly. Yep. And albeit Manu's injury concerns are concerning there, but... I mean, let's, let's just put this in, um, in sort of context. It wasn't that long ago that I remember doing a similar exercise for my column to, to you when we were talking about number 10s. And all the number 10s in the Premiership, uh, barring a couple, were uh, overseas players. And now that's transformed and we've got uh, people coming through. So it can change. It's a question of... Um, being a priority, I think. Because if you, as you say, you, you, you need these things, they've got to actively look for them. They've got to actively try and convert people. Because that's what happened with the tens. You know, they, 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 stopped, they stopped picking um, and they stopped drafting players from abroad. And, and that gave uh, the English, uh, whatever production system it is, whether it's schools or, or, or juniors or whatever, whatever it, it, it will fulfil it. But you, but you, you can't do that if the if the if the outlets aren't there. And I cannibalise my own point a bit there by saying about the style that Estouzen brings, which is brilliant, and I love how he plays. But you can then have a creative ten, yep. inside Mark and, Smith, yeah, yeah, and, and an outstanding footballing backline because you know when it all comes down to it, 
you've got what was typically a Mike Tindall in the middle who's just going to run hard and straight. And when England play with Manu and he does that, they look like a different team. So I think if we're talking positionals, we also have to talk tactics. And then even looking at genetics about where are these mm. big, strong 12s coming through. Or if they're not, which might be the case, then it's a footballing 12, almost like that Aussie mentality or Kiwi having the second 5 eighth. And then you get creative players coming into it, which having seen the England 20s play for the last three or four years, that's what they're doing. So they're bringing these young footballers through. But what they are not is six foot five and 18 stone. Mm. Uh, you previously said on the forecast that you'd like to see uh, George Ford return to the England setup. He's just been named Premiership Player of the Month the second time this season. Is there any chance, realistic chance, he's going to be brought, brought back in? I hope so. I mean, Chris, if you talk about wanting to look at the mentality of a player, you cast him away from a, a stone cold selection and then get Player of the Month. I mean, talk about giving the big. Fingers up to Eddie Jones there. He's done it, hasn't he? And, and that, for me, is character. And that's doesn't, why you doesn't want all this Doesn't all this... It, I, this is the elephant, or whatever you like to call it in the room, is, is Owen Farrell. And look, I, I personally, I like Owen Farrell. I think he's a great player. But his selection... One of the problems is, you know, he dominates selection so much that it reduces options elsewhere. And the inordinate amount of... Um, act to me... Um, responsibility uh, he's been given via Eddie Jones for his leadership and so on, um, sometimes I think skews every other selection debate that, that he touches. Well, it's like Johnny Wilkerson, isn't it? You end up being that good in one position, you then end up being a weakness to the team if you're not then available. Yeah. Um, and I think it'd be interesting to see what people think around Ford's selection, if indeed Marcus Smith seemed to be the heir to this throne, so to speak. But then again, how then you need to change your back line because of that, because he needs that outlet. He needs to have that supportive nine on the inside, of which there's a fair few in England at the moment, but then the 12 scenario. So you've got someone like Alex Lozowski, who I believe is a wonderful footballer, learned from his time out in France with Montpellier, but then suddenly... You can't put him in there necessarily to Marcus Smith because then you're going to be frail against the likes of Wales and Ireland with Mundi Akiran at you all day. So I think tactically it's one thing, technically it's another, and then strategically how are you going to try and maul all those together? And there's a wider point, I think, with the Smith thing because if you start down the path of saying, yeah, well, I'll pick you, you can't with any credibility say it's on a game-to-game basis with someone that young because that's not where the way players develop, is it? You can't, you can't develop players like that. You've got to do what France have done and, uh, and accept that they, they might have a few bad games, but they're going to be there to give them the confidence. In France have got the model to look at. I mean, they started grooming this squad four years ago when they were tearing up trees under 20s. But Eddie Jones' soundbite from all of this is he's quoted by saying, moving forwards, not backwards. Mm-hmm. So that makes you think, OK, well, if you're thinking for a forward um, development, then, then that's when you do get the younger players in. And I really like what he did with those apprentices. Mm-hmm. Didn't really do much other than a nice soundbite and got an asterisk next to their name. But you had these young players who were in and around the squad that you bring through. That's how you develop players. That's what New Zealand have done for years. They get them in early, they experience that type of coaching environment, and albeit, yes, they're centrally contracted, so it's easier for the All Blacks. But they've got this conveyor belt of talent coming through, and that's what I don't think England have at the moment. Uh, one of the areas I wrote about in my uh, Telegraph column today was number eight. Um, I, 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 I'm sorry, I, I cannot see this Tom Curry experiment working. It hasn't worked so far. Maybe uh, it, it will, but suddenly... I, but I, I, what, more is he, what more is he going to do with his physique uh, and, and so on and his, his ability that he can do very well at seven? I just... I, I, I am lost on this. I'm sorry. So I, again, would look at this 
strategically thinking about centre partnerships and how important it is for those two as a dynamic to work at exactly the same with your back row. And typically many things have been seen over the years where your George Smith and Phil Wars have changed the game as having two sevens that could play six and seven or or even like a South Africa where you could get one of them wearing an eight but actually playing a six role. Uh, they swap their seven and six in South Africa so it's a bit more convoluted when you look at it. But actually you've got this core group of players who are all very good. Your Don Brandt's, Curry's, Underhill, Simmons for me, I think he is exceptionally athletic and that's what I would want in number eight. If I was seven and had the dog and, and had the work rate, you could have your eight to be a bit more like an extra centre if you like out wide. But then you think, well, how does that change the six? You need your line-out options. So your Ted Hill gets put into the mix. And you can see already how these dynamics really change based on one or two players being different. But if you're going to put typically a seven as an eight, that's fine. But then that comprehensive change is what your six does. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've got necessarily in the shortlist of the players we're looking at that out-and-out six. So I think if you're going to put a Dombrant there, that makes sense to me. You could combine that with an Underhill, who is an exceptional tackler, brilliant work rate. And then the one to play with is a six. And what do you want to look at? Do you want to look at a kind of a second-row option with your five line-out options or more of... Well, he's going to carry on with, with Laws, isn't he? Especially as Laws... Had a very, very good autumn at the National Series and as captain. So, mm. But he could uh, be second row. So again, well, ex- exactly. Plenty of options. It's yeah. a good thing we're talking options, but I think you get to the realms where your Eddie Jones psychology kicks in and he's obviously going to do what he wants to do. But I, I think Don Brandt would be hard to look past at number eight. Um, I've got a note here that Eddie has picked 20 different centre partnerships in his, thing, his time. Since the last settled effective partnership was Tyndall and Greenwood, which is now 18, 12, well, more years ago, uh, probably. We, I don't know how many centre partnerships England must have had. Probably about 40-odd, I would think. I'm trying to think of centres with like a good good handful of caps. Matthew Tate, 37 caps. I mean, he was exceptional. But he together. Was, that's what I mean. I can't think he was his 12 throughout, really. Um, Toby Flood had a good old stint, but he was in that hybrid 10-12 again. So I think you're right. The fact that we're thinking so hard about it over the last 20 years, it suggests there is someone needed to really fill that role of 12, which I think is far harder for an English team to get right than a 13, of which yeah. we've got lots of potential candidates for that. So I, I'd be intrigued, first and foremost, is how does that change the tactic? Yeah. Looking at the scrum, um, I have uh, been open in the fact, though openly critical of Dan Cole in the past because I think he has been a passenger for... For Leicester, but this season, his form has been exemplary. He's back to to the best. He's played uh, better than he did for for many years for England. Um, he's, he's approached his thirty fifth birthday, which is not a problem for a prop, especially if he's not playing the full stint. Would you would you would you pick him? Would you put him back in the squad? Well, on the premise that Eddie Jones has said, moving forwards, not backwards. No, <laughs> no, on that premise. But then again, you know, he picked Mark Atkinson last year at thirty one. So, I think you get someone like Dan Cole who can who can use his experience to impact a game clearly for 20 minutes at the end it would be a sensible thing to have him there or thereabouts you've also got to name 36 players of which yeah. there's going to be what at least nine props within that you'd think so I imagine he may well get on the list whether it be a dead set starter definitely not and potentially a bit of game time on the bench if anything else it'd be great to see him back with Joe Marler for some good sound bites wouldn't it yes it would videos yes. Out there. well Marler will be there um, Ellis Gedge's form has been good as Leicester captain has been a significant factor in them doing well and Mako Vonipola is there. You see, you've got a triumvirate there, very good, experienced, uh, um, loose head. So there's not going to be a a problem there. Can you see any flyers? Would you like to see any flyers? Oh, shock, 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 shock. Don Ka- Dan Kelly for me is a long shot. I think he's someone that's stood up, stood up this year. 
for Leicester. A worldy pass to tee up that last try uh, for Leicester at the weekend. So I think players like that, I'd, I'd be excited to see. Same, if anything else, just have a Harry Potter on a name sheet. Everyone's going to be quite keen for that. <laughs> Certainly pundits would be. Alfie Barbary, there's a bit of one fear because yes. I think there's enough scene of what we've, what we've witnessed in his game this year to suggest he's ready. But he'd be one of those asterisk players that you might want to bring through and... I don't want to do any disrespect to Italy, but you know you could use games like that to say, well, let's have a look at this next crop, yeah, you know, twelve, twenty-four months type players. So they'd be they'd be two, and then I'd actually had a chat with Lee Blackett about Paolo Dogwa, about how he could go at thirteen, because again, very dynamic, you know, compared to Jason Robinson for his athleticism and dynamism. Not quite sure he's at that level, but he's certainly exciting, and as a thirteen, he'd be different. Um, but he doesn't think he's there yet in terms of his core skills, so. I don't think we're going to see many surprises, no. But I would like to see a couple of young lads really get a bit of a chance to put the hand up. Well, we'll know all the headline squad selections by the time uh, we do our next uh, podcast. Uh, Looking forward, fools, uh, uh, foolish to try to do this. I'm going to ask you to do it first. Um, (laughs) Who are you tipping to win the tournament? Right, can I just caveat this and say, (laughs) at the the beginning of this, you said we're hoping for one of the tightest Six Nations ever. Last year must have been the by a long shot. So take away Italy's game. Yeah. I'm, I'm Italy bashing here, but they had a minus 184 points difference, so they can they can be parked for this statistic. Eight out of ten games were decided by five points or less. Yeah. With no crowd. So yeah. that's going to be a big part of it. I think it's going to be tight. I can I can reasonably argue with myself that both France and Ireland could have a sensational Yes, Six Nations campaign but then you start doing as everyone does looking at the home away facets France England and Ireland at home England been their last game and they've game. got a nice opener it's always nice to have because I say this about the Six Nations if you lose your first fixture you're in trouble because you're already on the defensive because you know you'll need one more loss and your title hopes have gone the press come down on you yeah. you're panicked into selections you might not want to make if you can just scrape through the first fixture then everything disproportionately is, is rosy and you can at least make changes from a point of strength rather than panic and pressure. If you've got Italy, that's going to happen, so that's fine. So you can do that. Well, no one else has got Italy but France have. And they've got England for the last game at home. So I swear I've been under the bus there. What do you think? I think the French will... I think that the team... If you finish above France, you'll win the, you win the championship. France to finish fourth then. This could be interesting. <laughs> But it is interesting, and I think the reason why we're excited by it, and you know, one of the things that 2022 is going to bring us that we didn't get last year, is that utter catharsis of, of just seeing people in a stadium, yep. having that camaraderie and yep. amazing atmosphere. And the players responding to oh, it. Totally. Yep. And it was just, it was almost heartbreak being there at Twickenham, feeling like it was a training run. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be cracking. Now, delighted to say I've got with me the uh, performance director of Welsh Rugby, a man I uh, know well. I've never caught him, ever. I never missed a tackle on him, either, though. Nigel Walker, hello, Nigel. Hi, Brian, and yeah. I'm really pleased that you didn't get to tackle me, because I would have <laughs> the scarf before you now, I'm sure. Look, it's a very historic moment for Welsh Rugby, announcing 12 uh, professional women's contracts. What do you expect uh, this to do to the game? Given it isn't a full squad, it isn't one of you, but it's a start... Uh, what's, what's, the, what's the proposed pathway for it then? Well, the important thing is that 12 full-time professionals, um, we've got a senior leadership group. We had a sum of money. I took a proposal to that senior leadership group and I said, how best could we split this money? And it was their view 
that full-time professional contracts was better than 40 players having small part-time contracts. So we came to a view that 12 full-time contracts and then what we're calling retainer contracts, which we hope to announce uh, later this week, up to 15 of those. And then there will be a third category, which will be camp-based. So anybody who's not in those two former categories who is still making a squad for a Six Nations or for a World Cup will get something as well. So the bottom line is nobody will play for nothing anymore. Everybody will be recompensed in some way, shape or form. OK, um, this obviously would be uh, a subject of, I would imagine, a hotly debated selection process. So how did you go about that? What were the factors involved and how do you break it to the ones who did and didn't get the full-time ones? Well, the first thing is the structure uh, was agreed amongst the squad. The whole squad agreed that it would be better to have 12, well, it was 10 full-time players originally. We stretched to 12 and up to 15 part-time or retainer contracts. That was the first thing. Uh, they accepted that you can't divide 40 into uh, into 12 and get, and get a, a suitable answer. So they've accepted that straight away. And then it was down to performance during the Autumn International. So the coaches, and it's a coaching group, then sat down and said, right, looking forward to the Six Nations in the World Cup, what's the spine of our squad going to be? And as usual, Brian, you know, you look at your hooker, uh, and, and it won't surprise you to know that, you look at your number eight, you look at your scrum half, look at your outside half, and you look at your key players, your best players, and that's how they decided. And then they looked at performance and a, a few other criteria, and they came down to 12, and then they came um, up with the retainer contracts as well, the names to go against those retainer contracts. Hi, Nigel, it's Rob here. Um, just a question. You mentioned financial there, which is really insightful. For what, for you, will be part of the package other than the money for these players? Well, that, this is the important thing. It's the daily or near-daily contact with our coaches and science and medicine team. So those on full-time contracts, we know they've got club contracts. They know they're expected to be in their club, but they will be with us three or four days a week, every week of the year. And that's really important for us. So it's not just fitness, but it's technical it's group work, it's unit work, it's everything. You can take the whole thing forward. And when you add the up to 15 players on the retainer contracts, they will be training two or three days a week. So you've got a nucleus of players who you've got regular contact with on a regular basis. There was a petition signed by you know, over 120 former players last September calling on the WRU to take uh, some action surrounding this funding. Um, was that influential or not? Well, these things always have a, an impact. You know that, Brian. Uh, we've had a review. Uh, the 120-odd players, I wasn't a, uh, an employee of the union at the time, and the 120-odd players then put in, in writing their concerns about the progress or lack of it being made in the women's game, and that's been heard by the Welsh Rugby Union. And in my interview, the review, not the letter, but the review, was mentioned on a number of occasions and what my plans would be to take the Welsh game forward. So the whole of the Welsh Rugby Union, the board, the executive, everybody within the Welsh Rugby Union recognises we need to do better with the women's game. And we've done quite a bit in the last four or five months to take that game forward. One of the uh, allegations from, from the Celts in particular has always been that England are a much bigger uh, union, they've got much more money, it's all right for you uh, spending this money, etc., etc. But I've always said to them, the split of money in the Six Nations from the men's tournament uh, is such that England don't get vast uh, amounts more. And if you can do this, uh, can you see any reason why, for example, the 
um, the Scots and the Irish can't do it. Yeah, well, you would expect me to say it's not for me to comment on how the Irish and the Scots spend their money. Um, but there's a finite pot of money in every union. It is for the executive and the board to determine how that money should be allocated against the um, the calls on that money. The Welsh Rugby Union has decided that women's rugby is important. It's decided it's going to invest in the game and it wants to take the women's game forward in Wales. And I'm committed to it. My colleagues on the exec board are committed to it and the wider board are committed to it. Um, you should really be a politician, Nigel. That's a very good answer. Uh, well, I'll therefore make the point that uh, I suspect you may well agree with but can't say explicitly. There is no reason other than um, lack of will, therefore, that Ireland and Scotland uh, cannot follow at least the Welsh example, if not the English example, and start this book. And it seems to me that the reason they're not doing it is they don't think it's important enough. So that, I'll just make that point. Um, where, where else, where, how far do you think this can get you and how quickly do you think it, it can get you up the standards uh, within the women's game? We changed the performance environment during August, September. We saw the results in October. We've not won a game for two years. We won two out of the three games. Nobody's saying we're the best team in the world because clearly we're not. With this added investment, we'd expect our performances to improve over the Six Nations. The idea is that we'll go into the World Cup and that we will challenge the best teams in the world. Clearly, England are the best team in the world at the moment, having dispatched uh, the Black Ferns uh, during uh, the autumn campaign. That's the target, to match England in terms of their standards of uh, performance, professionalism, all the other things, and hopefully close the gap between us and the best teams in the world. Uh, let's just move on quickly to them while we've got you here onto the men's game. Um, defending champions of the Six Nations, it looks now like the uh, spectre, I would have thought, of playing at Twickenham isn't going to be there for your home games. Um, is anything less than uh, winning the title acceptable? Well, I'm not going to put that pressure on the team, but you wouldn't expect <laughs> me. You and I have been through that, and we wouldn't thank anybody if they said uh, anything less than winning the title is going to be failure. Um, as you know, the Six Nations is hugely competitive. Um, you've got France resurgent. England are always strong. Uh, Ireland uh, beat the All Blacks in, in the autumn. Scotland have probably got their best team uh, for over a decade. And this is not me making excuses. Most games, it'll be a bounce of a ball or a missed tackle or a, a moment of brilliance. It's going to be hugely competitive and exciting. Uh, but I'm optimistic about Wales' chances. We've got some very good players. We've got some good players in, injured. Um, and the more of those good players we can get back into the team, the better our chances will be. Uh, that's just common sense. Uh, but I'm looking forward to it. It will be hugely competitive, though. Nigel, um, you have been... Uh, I think you've been better than Mark Drayford. Actually, much, much better. Uh, and that's saying something. So good luck to you, mate. If I, I hope I bump into you over the Six Nations at some point. And if I don't, um, have a good one. Thanks for joining us. In the 20 years I've known you, Brian, that's the only compliment you've ever given me, so I'll take it. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> it's the only one you're going to get. It's all right. <laughs> he, he knows what he's doing. He's a, he's a very savvy guy. Um, what, and I would expect nothing different from him. Um, it is a big step, isn't it? Is it how, how soon would you look, like to see them developing onto full England model? Or is that just a question of time? I think the more 
the problem will be is what they're going to do with their time. Like you mentioned about being with the clubs, getting yeah. together in those camps and having that more contact with teams. But clearly the English model falls back on the fact that the Premiership rugby is so good for the women. So they can have that outlet, they can have that player pool. And once again, the strength is in their depth. Um, I think it's also very interesting what they're going to do with their sevens model because this year, looking at a Commonwealth Games and a Rugby World Cup of which Wales could be representative in the sevens, and that could be a really good way of inspiring the younger generation. So I think there's a, a wider strategy he needs to certainly grab hold of and say, look, this is the start of it. We've got 12 down now. We want it to be 20 by the next 12 months and then from there have this incredible pathway in place, which I just don't think is there at the moment. Can I just stress this to people who are listening and who might not know this? As I mentioned with Nigel, people are always saying, you know, England have much more money. Well, they do in this sense. They, their games sell out uh, more often. There are more of them. Uh, there are more events there and so on. But the Six Nations money, which is often pointed to, is split like this. 75% of the Six Nations money from the men's tournament, the broadcast and other income, is split completely equally between the protagonists minus France because they're a separate thing. Then 15% is split on how you finish in the table. And then only the remaining 10% is weighted towards bigger unions like England. So England do get a bigger share of the Six Nations money, but only of 10% of it. And in terms of how it's actually split, the monies are given a few percentages, points, virtually equal. And when you think about how much bigger the infrastructure is for the RFU and the number of clubs they have to support through that um, it comes nowhere near being proportionate in that sense and I return to the fact that I genuinely believe that the money is there for the unions all the unions, the Celtic unions to invest in women's rugby if they think, like Nigel Walker said, that it is a sufficiently important part of their development process and the only reason they're not doing it, is to me, they don't think it's important enough. They're wrong, they're badly wrong, and uh, for, for reasons we've been into on this podcast in my columns and, and, and many other times. But they will catch up eventually, but let's just lay it to bed that it's not, it's not because they've not got no money. The only thing I'd add to that is the fact they've got the CVC money as well. Exactly. We're talking £51 million there, so it's not a small bit of change. So yep. yeah, I agree with you. Three quick questions before we go. One from Kevin. With England seemingly in transition, having only two home games, what do you think is an acceptable position to finish in the Six Nations? Um, not not fourth. Not not fifth or fourth. No, I mean, if they, if they were to run us up, if it were to come down to a title-deciding clash away at Stade de France, I think that would be acceptable for England at the moment, however it came out. I just think those home performances are massive. And mm. Ireland and Wales at Twickenham, what was always a fortress, has lost that little bit of an aura. And mm. I think that needs to be reclaimed. Mm. Um, that's not going to appease anyone who loves results. But, you know, we talked about how tight it was last year. I think performance is one thing, results will be another. Um, from Steve, there is uh, uh, the usual question about Italy, but you know, um, should they be there? Should it be a playoff system? I'll, I'll, I've said this, I'm just going to deal this quickly. There should be uh, an automatic right for the second tier in European rugby to get it into the Six Nations, but you can't have it every year because it'll be a yo-yo effect. That's no good on anyone. Maybe have it every three or four years, Hoban away. I don't care how you do it, but there's got to be an automatic right. But at the moment, I tell you what, people are talking about Georgia. Georgia are no better than Italy. No. Georgia would get hammered as well. 
So you've got to be careful about this because you don't want to create that system. Some form of it over its year. Every year, no, it can't be that. Final one, uh, James, is it unfair that unvaccinated players will be allowed to play in France after they are allegedly refusing Novak Djokovic entry to play in the French Open? You know what? I don't care. Um, it's up to uh, it's up to the unions to do what they want. Frankly, I think everyone should be vaccinated. But if um, someone decides that you can't play because you're not, that's up to them. Just You've from, from a rugby perspective on this, because we were asked as an England 7s team to go to Kenya and play in the Safari 7s, which was amazing. But to get there, you had to have five vaccinations yep. because then your risk of infection obviously comes down. Nobody asked any questions about that. It was just done because it was part of the procedure as a yep. sports person to compete yep. in a different country. And I think sometimes sport gets overly politicised. This is a simple debate, isn't it? If you want to go, then you have to have that vaccination. Yeah. Um, before we uh, before we go, can I just uh, have a shout out to uh, Tonga? Mm. Uh, it's been a disaster over there. One of the islands exploding in the ash cloud is still affecting wide parts of the globe, actually. But our thoughts uh, and prayers uh, with the people who are affected in Tonga, there must be must be very worrying for the uh, many Tongans who play around the world who can't get in touch uh, with relatives because of the uh, blackout that there's been in terms of communications and media not able to get there. So uh, let's hope that that can go through and the help uh, is given that is needed so they can get back onto their feet as quickly as they can. Um, and our sincere condolences to those who have lost relatives that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph big thanks to my co-host Rob Vickerman and to my guest Nigel Wolf for joining me if you've enjoyed this episode you can check out all our previous episodes by subscribing to the Full Contact podcast channel which includes my sit down with England head coach Eddie Jones we'll be back next week to discuss all the headline news from the Six Nations squads and I'll be alongside the former Scotland scrum half Rory Lawson, but until then, it's goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.